guys, welcome to the CP Junkie podcast, where we bring you interviews with dentists sharing their CPD stories and journeys from around Australia. What better way to learn than to follow those who've already done it before? CP Junkie is Australia's most comprehensive CPD, so head over to cpdjunkie.com.au and become a member for free to access the full features of the site. Podcast, where we bring you interviews with dentists sharing their CPD stories and journeys from around Australia. What better way to learn than to follow those who've already done it before? CPD Junkie is Australia's most comprehensive CPD, so head over to cpdjunkie.com.au and become a member for free to access the full features of the site. I'm your host, Lauren Stone, and today we are joined by Dr. Maria Avis. Dr. Maria Avis graduated from Sydney University in 1998. Since then, she's been working in a number of private practices in Sydney, gaining experience and expanding her knowledge on various fields of the profession. This included three years in a specialist prosthodontic practice for, of a university professor, three years in a specialist orthodontic practice under the uh, supervision of a prominent Sydney orthodontist, three years and currently a specialist practice restricted to implantology and over 10 years in a large CBD group practice which offered all aspects of dentistry under the same roof. In 2015, Dr. Maria Avis started her own independent dental practice in Bondi Junction focusing on implantology and cosmetic dentistry. Dr. Maria Avis, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lawrence. Appreciate that. So, tell us about your CPD uh, dental journey so far. Oh, gosh, where do I start? Um, uh, the term junkie is certainly uh, very suited to me. Um, my friends laugh at me and my husband threatened divorce many times um, if I do another <laughs> CPD course. So, yes, I'm addicted to education. I absolutely love it. And I've done just about anything you can think of. Sure. Well, let's, let's talk about how like you started out the specialist prosthodontic practice, you know, how did you get um, into that? Because working for a prosthodontist is not very common. No, not at all, especially 20 years ago. It's becoming more common now, I think, but um, 20 years ago, it was a big no-no. Um, uh, Jim Ironside was my teacher at uni and um, I guess he thought I wasn't half bad. <laughs> And uh, that was actually my first job when I graduated. Um, I basically just uh, did whatever he didn't want to do, fillings and things for people that didn't have a general practitioner to go back to. Uh, it was all very um, uh, ethical. Um, we always returned to the patient uh, to the general practitioner, but if they didn't have anywhere to go to, that's where I came in. But for, from my personal perspective, it was just um, sticking around specialist practice, just watching what they do, uh, learning a few good habits, hopefully. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. So when you're at that practice, what were some of these good habits that you kind of came about? Uh, striving for perfection. Um, I don't actually know if that's a good habit. Uh, over the years, I realized that it's probably kind of tending to a bad habit. Uh, but that's what I learned from Jim. Um, yeah, because you were pouring up these models, you were 
doing diagnostic, yeah. diagnostic wax-ups for him, is that right? And you were learning about Seric and all of that at the same time? Yes, yes. 20 years ago, it was vastly <laughs> different from what it is now. But yes, that's when we started. And just watching him in action um, and certainly the laboratory side of things and how he checked things, attention to detail, uh, photography, because he was already at that point doing a lot of photography. And um, we as young graduates, we didn't even, we didn't learn about it. We didn't know about it. So that was something, whoa, uh, it was different dentistry. You wouldn't believe it, but 20 years is not a long time. Well, I suppose it is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, not a long time, but let's, let's, okay, let's frame it. So you, you started out this practice. How did you decide to pick the CPD courses that you're going to? Because you know, you've got a specialist prosthodontist, you know, there at your clinic. You can learn from side by side. How'd you go? Uh, well, prosthodontics was my first obsession. Throughout my career, I went through a number of obsessions. And I can literally, uh, in my brain, stage them from the day I graduated and how it all developed. Um, so I graduated thinking that I was going to go into prosthodontics. Uh, I was dreaming of specializing in pros, and that's why I started in this practice. And that's where all my pros CPD came from. Um, anything that was to do with pros, I went and did. Veneers, uh, full mouth rehabs, uh, there was an aesthetic um, postgraduate program in Adelaide University that was such a long time ago. I can't remember exactly now what it was, but it was all to do with pros. Ceramics and um, Jim, of course, is, uh, has a PhD in ceramic science. So in material engineering PhD, essentially. So <laughs> he talked about it all the time. Um, so that was my first obsession. But then other things started developing because uh, already in Jim's practice, I started encountering root canals. Right. And that was my next obsession. And with root canals, I remember to this day that when I was graduating and we were in a group of students um, and I announced publicly that never, ever will I do this to myself, uh, doing an upper molar, upper second molar endodontics. Like, why would you ever? That is ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, that's why we have specialists. Uh, well, guess what my second job was? It wasn't second job, but it was a second big job. Yeah. Um, I was hired by a, a group of dentists that didn't want to do endo in their practice. And um, they kind of learned that I took particular interest in endo. So they hired me specifically to do endo. They didn't give me anything else to do, just endo. Wow. So learned a lot, steep <laughs> learning curve. And again, that was the period uh, where I did all the courses to do with endo, right. watched specialists at work. Um, yeah, and that's when I started doing molar endos, okay. tons so and of, tons of them. Let's let's come back to the prosthodontics side of things. Yeah. Um, obviously, like you mentioned, there was a few courses there. You said there was an Adelaide course. Was that uh, a program? You were doing all these other ones. Were you picking these because um, – you know, Prof Einside um, was recommending you were doing the, to do these. Did you hear it from someone else? How did you come about finding these kind of courses? Uh, usually, and to this day, I pick 
the person behind the course. Usually it's someone that I often know. As an example, um, I know Chris Ho really, really well. So now any course that Chris Ho puts up, um, I'm likely to sign up for it. Um, so it's it's usually the, the person behind the course. Or it could be um, a particular topic that interests me. Um, for example, veneers. That was one big thing. I wanted to learn about bonding side of it. I wanted to learn about smile design. And these are all separate bits. So if I saw a course on smile design, I went, tick, let's do that. Yeah. Um, if I saw a course by Tony Rotondo, everybody knows Tony. So it was initially it was all local um, people, actually. Mm -hmm. And probably in the early 2000s, um, for me at least, traveling overseas for education wasn't so big. Maybe because um, the Internet wasn't as developed as it is now and we didn't know about all these Polish um, surgical stars that, that we now go and see. At that right. point, it was mostly through the ADA or yeah. the local courses given by local practitioners that I knew. Right, yeah, yeah. And so um, that so you basically looked at the presenter who was presenting it and that's how you kind of decided. Um, yeah, yeah, mostly. And how did you come across the Adelaide one? What was that one like? Because, uh, yeah. I won't remember now. Uh, I think it was it was a very solid program. That was that was not like one or two days. Mm -hmm. it, it was over a period of time. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the presenters I knew from Jim, one of the prosthodontists, one of the older prosthodontists. Yes. Um, so yeah. Did you? I mean, when you because you're attending a few courses. I mean, and looking back at it now. Do you feel a structured approach is better or do you prefer a more, you know, weekend course, you know, early in your career? I mean, how would you decide? Oh, I, I honestly don't know what's better, Lawrence. I have to tell you, uh, it's so individual and every journey is so vastly different. Um, maybe if you pick uh, one area and if you are lucky enough to know exactly what you love, and you're happy to restrict yourself to that area, maybe a specialty program would be best for a particular person. Looking back now, I'm actually so enjoying general dentistry. I'm so happy I didn't actually specialize, as in specialize. Yeah. I'm now quite restricted to implantology, but you know what, implantology is so vast. It's right. not like any other specialty. It's it, the variety is just unbelievable, and there's no end to learning. It's just crazy. So I don't know if you can call it a specialty. It's just like maybe general dentistry at, at a more complex level. Yeah, with a special I would interest. say that. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. But I love being a generalist. The only thing I don't do is kids. I don't do kids. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a common theme that seems to be across a lot of yeah. our general dentists. <laughs> Um, so, you know, during that time, you know, there was a lot of hype during uh, doing full mouth rehabs, cosmetic veneers, crowns, you know, with the LVI that was coming all out. You know, how do you look at that now compared to these days of ever-growing attention and desire by a recent graduate dentist wanting to do more full mouth rehabs or large cosmetic cases when they want to graduate? Especially with so much social media awareness nowadays. Hmm. Hmm. I've never done LVI, by the way. Just have to tell you that. Somehow, 
somewhere deep inside I felt that it wasn't it, it was it was intuition because everybody around me was doing it um with younger dentists, I certainly wouldn't be starting my career by doing um, full mouth rehabs. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just really painful because I prefer to learn from others' mistakes. Learning from your own mistakes, especially if you've got your own practice really early on, oh, it's painful, man. Um, failures in dentistry are, to me anyway, I have a very low to tolerance to failure. So I prefer to make sure that I try I mean, it's unavoidable, sure, but if you get into very complex dentistry very early on, um, your failure rate is going to be extremely high and the failures are going to be very, very devastating. So slowly, slowly, just learning to walk, you know. Sure, yeah. So after that, you, I mean, right between pros and between endo, there was ortho. So yeah. You're, yeah. you're working at a orthodontic practice and you're still a general practice part-time as well. Yeah. Tell us about yeah. that situation. Where was yeah. that transition? The minute, and then... the minute I left gym and the, the reason I left gym, I got bored because the work that I was doing there was very boring. Um, I did a lot of amalgam buildups um, and at some point I got over it. Um, yes, I was excited about amalgam carvings at, at some point in my career, how sad. But um, at one point I got bored with that and uh, that's when I actually don't remember who introduced me to Derek. I think it was one of my previous bosses because I went through a, a few practices again early on in my career um, and I started doing Derek's course, EODO. And that was, of course, orthodontics. I don't know how it is now, but orthodontics was not taught. Uh, and all of a sudden, this whole new world opened up in front of me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, um, this is just ridiculous. And I lost sleep over it. And I got obsessed. And I did all Derek's courses. And Derek, just as he does, um, that's his practice model is slightly different now. But that's what it was in those years. Uh, he had young dentists just basically doing the, you know, bracket bonding and wire changing. He was the brain behind cases um, and he still is, but he just didn't want to, you know, do mechanical stuff. And there's a lot of mechanical stuff in orthodontics that is initially quite hard to do, mm -hmm. but it doesn't take any brain capacity. So Derek feels, felt quite rightly so that he didn't want to do this, you know, wire changes. <laughs> But for younger dentists, that was heaven because uh, by changing those wires and reading the notes and Derek was always on the floor, that was amazing. That's how I learned orthodontics. I learned orthodontics on the job. And that's still a very big part of my practice because I feel that doing pros is very, very difficult if you don't know anything about ortho. Mm. Yeah, it's, Even it's if a... you don't do it yourself... I think it's a really good idea to learn what's possible and what's not possible um, to be able to offer it to patients. So that, that's another thing. Like when you learn something, it doesn't mean that you're going to have to do it, but it helps you in planning cases enormously. Mm. So then my question to you would be, do you, would you recommend just taking on like modules about treatment planning, diagnosis, or do you, are you suggesting maybe a more structured long-term courses? Because there are slight orthodontics. Orthodontics has to be structured. Yeah. Orthodontics, and the simple reason for that is we don't even get background in the dental school. Mm. 
In prose, we graduate with uh, an idea of what we need to know with very little knowledge, but at least we we do some of it. Um, Orthodontics is a complete 100% mystery when you graduate from the dental school. So you have to start from the beginning. And also orthodontics is very um, brain intensive. Like you have to think a lot. Um, Initially, it's not at all intuitive. Mm -hmm. And you have to go through, it's like learning anatomy. Like we started from really basic things and we thought, well, all these, you know, learning off by heart, why is it important? Because then it falls into place. And that's how ortho is. You have to learn surf, you have to learn the angles, you have to look at faces and biomechanics. And it's all very boring and it doesn't make sense until you start doing it. But that's the way it has to be done. Yeah. And then would you say that you went on and did more orthodontics after that? Like yes, a ton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was, uh, I think that dude actually still comes. I've seen his name. Uh, he teaches through the ADA. Um, um, Eric, Dr. Eric from USA? That's it. Eric, yes. I've, I did all his courses. Um, and he's very different from Derek. But that's the, uh, the beauty about orthodontics. You can listen to all these, I suppose, any, any area really. Uh, you can listen to all these different people with different styles and then put them together. Eric was fantastic for mechanics. He was just absolutely brilliant. I loved his courses. Uh, there was another, Dr. Lee, uh, he's still a practitioner in, uh, I think, Lower North Shore. Um, he had a series of courses. I don't think he's teaching now, but he also was fantastic for mechanics and things. So, yes, lots and lots and lots of courses. Was this the comprehensive orthodontic program Australian? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was yeah, a hands-on yeah. one, wasn't it? As well. Yes. All of all of them were more or less hands-on. Mm-hmm. Uh, Derek's, of course, was even on patients, mm-hmm. but um, Dr. Lee's was always models, wire bending. Uh, Eric's models, wire bending. All of them for sure. This is yeah. Dr. Stephen Lee. Is that right? That one. Oh uh, yes, I think so. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure enough. And then, I mean, and then now you talk about myofunctional, ENT, like, did you cut, is that where things kind of went? Is that what happened? Oh, uh, for sure. Uh, Myofunctional, not so much, simply because I don't see a lot of children. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't, I don't do a lot of um, appliances. I don't do a lot of early orthodontics. Um, I mostly refer them to Derek, Um, but I will certainly screen my patient's kids, for example, quite often I will have a conversation with a parent and they really appreciate that. Um, teenage ortho, yeah, for sure. But that's pretty much adult ortho. <laughs> so not, not myofunctional for me, yeah. uh, although I've learned about it and I know about it. Breathing is huge for me. I screen patients for sleep apnea. I have a relationship with um, uh, Chris Kelly. You know, Chris Kelly, he's the Airways guy um, and his business is fantastic. Um, just have to say this. He's doing an, an uh, amazing service to the community. Uh, so breathing functional issues, yes, uh, but not so much appliances. Yeah. And, um, you know, then it was more about fix. And they're slowly transitioning nowadays 
a lot of graduates are talking about clear aligners. They're talking about all that, Invisalign, clear correct, all that. You know, for yourself, you went through that phase of fix first, and then slowly these clear aligners kind of came along the way. You know, for graduates now that come out and they just see that, what's your thoughts? Um, you just <laughs> stepped on on a on a sore spot. For me, for me, clear aligners is a sore spot. Um, I didn't learn clear aligners. Uh, as comprehensively as I learned fixed. So let's just say I don't like clear aligners because I ain't good at clear aligners. <laughs> so, yeah. and it's really sad because uh, looking looking now, I'm thinking, yeah, probably uh, you can still achieve a lot with clear aligners, although I still believe that um, fixed is the gold standard. Yeah. Um, I also got frustrated with clear aligners because I don't like when my performance depends on my patient's cooperation so much. Um, and I got sick of taking models second time and sending them for, you know, uh, revisions, etc. I, I just found that extremely frustrating. Uh, much easier to just bond a bracket and know exactly what's going to happen in three or five weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, then that patient disappearing, coming back in half a year with aligners all over the place and you don't know stuff again. It's just... It's annoying. Um, but that's something that I've been looking into now that you mention it. So um, I probably need to learn a bit more about clear aligners. Sure. And where's, where's that attention kind of, what, what are you, what's on the, like, what are you looking at in particular or has caught your attention that you might be interested in? Uh, with clear aligners? Yeah. Well, I just, I need a little bit more formal education in clear aligners. I need... I need. I just need to look closely into mechanics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just I haven't guess, haven't had the time for it. Yeah. I guess for a lot of graduates as well, they think about how you know, do I do the fix first? Do I do the clear aligners first? And then some of them are like, more. I just feel like I might do that. Do you have? I mean, do orthodontics. Like do orthodontics first. That would be my advice. Appliance doesn't matter. Um, you will learn about appliances later, but. Um, I wouldn't even be thinking about a particular appliance at this point. Um, diagnosis and treatment planning is where you need to start because it doesn't matter what appliance you learn if you don't go through the basics of it. And you've got to start with CEF and you've got to start with, you know, shapes and, and uh, space and requirements, et cetera, et cetera, um, and biomechanics. Appliance doesn't matter. It just so happened that I, I learned fixed and I, and I love it and I got so proficient at it. Um, I yeah. don't have anything against Invisalign or aligners, but um, that's not where you start. You start with diagnosis. Right, yes. So, I mean, would you say that you were um, selective in how you approached your dental journey or your CPD journey from, you know, pros to ortho to endo? Um, or was it more that it was more reflective of maybe where you wanted to go or the CPD choices that you were picking or the clientele that you wanted to kind of um, address? Hmm. Uh, good question. Um, I, I was selective, yes. Uh, how I chose what I wanted to know, I think it was probably more what interested me. And certainly what kind of clients I came across and what I needed to know. Um, 
but basically came down to interests, I think. Mm. Yeah. My so, interests. Yeah, so you were doing pros and then you were feeling like inclusion was something that you wanted to address, putting you in an ideal kind of position, not cutting teeth too back, and that's kind of maybe how you kind of develop an interest for ortho or I'm just I'm just jumping here. I, I don't know. Uh, ortho was by accident. My boss at the time, he had done the course and uh, he recommended the course and he said, and I knew nothing about ortho and I, I don't remember being interested in it, to be perfectly honest. But when you don't know about something, how can you get interested in it? And I just went for the first course. It was literally, it was the beginning of the program. It just so happened. Um, and it was the initial, I think it was, what was the first course? I think it might have been cephalometrics. I don't remember now in, in Derek's program. And that's that's when I said, whoa, that was like a epiphany. There's this whole new world that I didn't know about. Let's find out, shall yeah. we? And that's, yeah, that's how it started. Right. And so after you finish that, um, it's like, I think it's like a two-year, now three-year program. Yep. Um, and you're doing more orthodontics on, on the side. How did this endo thing kind of come about? I mean, you said that you found this practice um, and they specifically gave you endo, but was that in the job description that said, you know, endo only, or was it like yeah. John did and then, okay, right. No, 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 no. That was literally, we, we were, uh, they were mates. It's a it's a joint practice to uh, male dentists and um, very well established practice. I always had like when I was working for Jim, it was one or two days specialist practice, and then the rest of the week um, some other general practice somewhere in the suburbs. So it was the same with Jim. So endo kind of developed parallel. Yeah. Um, so it was all, I was always a, a general practitioner and endo was always on the cards. Um, it was always required. So initially it was, I just had to do something about my total inability to cut into molars. You know, um, it was so frustrating because I literally, when I graduated, I graduated having done one molar endo, one. Wow. It was a lower six. And I found that completely impossible. Yeah. Um, so that that was my experience in endo. That's horrendous. How can you function in general practice not being able to open up a molar? Um, and that just basically pissed me off. And I said, okay, well, I need to take this under control and started doing the courses. Ended up being very efficient and now I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I still do my own endo. <laughs> Yeah, so you were doing, so um, you picked courses again based off the presenters. Um, mm -hmm. And then um, did you go from like a hands-on kind of approach first or was it more just, because um, there's so many different endos courses out there now. So I'm just trying to help gauge, you know, for our community how they can, how they should think about picking it. Um, hands-on. Sorry? Hands-on. Yeah. There's not, there's not a lot of theory in endo. Sorry, endodontists. But honestly, there's whatever I was taught uh, 20 years ago, theory-wise, pretty much stands today, yeah. I would say. Uh, with, uh, of course, the technical developments are amazing. Um, we, 20 years ago, didn't even think about um, activation of your um, 
rinsing solutions. And the rinsing solutions were, you know, Milton was what we used, uh, which is, of course, vastly different now. But, you know, it's still the same. You've got to clean it pretty much. So (laughs) endo endo is very technical. Endo is here. So you've just got to... You've just got to bite the bullet and just start opening up molars. Just take them on. Mm. For some of our uh, listeners, they're probably going to see, but you're talking about your field is what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. And that's an interesting point I want to talk about because, you know, many graduates talk about how they want to get better at molar endos because sometimes they say it's because they're lower magnifications. They don't have that. They feel like they need a microscope. I mean, and like you've said already, it's more about feel. Yeah, look, um, I wouldn't be doing molar without any magnification. Um, and I very early on in my career started working with six and a half. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Was that I would say for sure. Um, go to a higher magnification loops. Mm-hmm. Uh, not microscope because, um, I mean, surely if you can buy a microscope, but I've always been on a budget. Um, certainly when I worked for other people and now I will think twice before I spent 50 grand Um, and things like surgery can't I'm not doing surgery for surgery I actually have loops with lower magnification still magnification but lower because um, you know with the surgery is just very difficult with the microscope so if you buy a microscope it's pretty much endo and pros um, so I, at the moment, I'm not looking at the microscope, but I, I do work with seven and a half now. Mm. Um, so with say, endo, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, you, you use a magnification, you said early on. Was that because mm. of the pros type of things you were doing? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jim, Jim worked with the microscope all the time. So I was kind of striving in that direction. I mean, you, you've, yeah, so you've mentioned that, you know, you, you've in the past can't stand bored. It's all about learning something new, le- doing something new. Um, so how does that kind of um, transition to where we are now about where, in, uh, sorry, where you are now in terms of surgical implantology? Oh, that was very um, logical and a fairly smooth transition because I started learning about implants in Jim's practice. Mm-hmm. He, of course, didn't place his own implants. We had uh, a surgical suite right across the corridor in the same building. So I had exposure to the surgical side of things but wasn't even dreaming about doing any of it. So at some point I got interested in restoring implants, obviously, because that was pros. And I started restoring a lot of implants and I'd restored a lot of implants. And at that point, I realized that, and I, I'm a strong believer in that, that um, the person who is restoring that implant has to be the person who placed the implant. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a, I believe very strongly about that because um, it's so interconnected. You, you just have to know the side of both specialties. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You can't plan for an implant intelligently if you've never placed one in before. You've right. got to know about the bone. You've got to know about soft tissue. You've got to know about, about restorative options. Um, and it has to be one brain that plans it. Mm-hmm. 
So otherwise it's, it becomes a mess. Also from the patient's perspective, they hate being thrown around um, specialties. Imagine if a person needs a placement and a soft tissue uh, work and restorative work. That's between three specialists. And who is planning it all? You know, if the restorative dentist has never done surgery and doesn't know anything about soft tissue, well, who's going to plan all of this and refer that patient to a periodontist for soft tissue surgery? Mm. So it's got to be one person. We talked about that. Um, it's about restoring. Uh, to do an implant, you have to be able to do the surgical side, have an understanding of the surgical side uh, before you can fully understand how to restore it. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Um, and so... Now that you've incorporated, how did you go learn your implantology? Because um, you mentioned, is it Brenner Institute at one point? Uh, yes, that was uh, that was when I already knew that I needed something, uh, some some more of a formal structure yeah. to a course. Because previously it was weekend after weekend after weekend. So uh, Brenner was. It was not so much learning, but consolidating what I learned in a very structured, continuous way. Um, but the reason that was not the only reason I chose Brenner. Um, another reason was that he offered supervised practice on patients, which was rather rare and still is. Yes. Um, and that was absolutely invaluable. Right. Doing surgery with someone standing behind you and holding a hand, not only does it give you knowledge and confidence, but um, also practice. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, I'm sure, like, at the time, it would have been pretty, like, high-level um, kind of CPD courses out there because in Australia we were probably faced with only branded implant courses right so when you're saying you're doing only weekend ones you're learning about it from different um um like companies and then it yes was, but yeah. company courses and you've got to start somewhere i'm not mm. saying they're bad no they're excellent courses yeah. but um it, just like orthodontics implantology has to be approached in a very systematic way um so like there's a lot of base learning that needs to happen before you pick up a scalpel because once cut is always cut so um you've got to be really careful there but um there are tons of programs now excellent yeah. programs so yeah. i think one issue is still learning on patients because surgeons don't learn from lectures um and I would even say that, yes, cadaver courses and pig's heads, they are very, very useful, but that's not how surgeons learn. Surgeons learn from other surgeons. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way to do it. And you can't do it online. You can teach a person how to put a bracket on or do a bond up of a case online. Yeah. You can't learn surgery online. You've got to be physically with that person. And I've had a few mentors in, in my surgical career. And that's where I learned most surgery. But I did have a background to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, would you say that for someone nowadays, it's best to go and pick a structured course that yeah. has a hand-on, um, yeah. um, like person-to-person kind of support 
um, yep. to approach it. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, one thing as well is for a lot of graduates, they think about, you know, um, how should I go and peak? How should I kind of start? I mean, there's so many different brands, right? Would you say that it's important to maybe pick a particular brand uh, that your practice has and then go from there on to You mean brand of an implant? Yeah, yeah. So brand of a brand of implant doesn't matter. Yeah. It's it's irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. Once you learn enough about implants, you will pick your own implant that you want to place. Um, and you know what? Different people have vastly different criteria as to how they pick implants. Um, amongst my mates, uh, largely all my mates are implantologists, and we're all placing different implants. Mm. Uh, there's no one perfect implant and everybody has their own criteria. But to actually have those criteria, you have to learn a lot about implantology before you make that choice. So whatever the implant is that your practice stocks, okay, learn. But when you learn about the implant, essentially, what, what do you learn? You learn the drill sequence. Okay, that's 10 minutes in front of a kit. Yeah. One, two, three, four, five. That's not really learning. That's that's mechanically how you put a particular screw in. That's not implantable. It doesn't matter what the system is. Absolutely irrelevant. Yeah. I, I say that, I ask that because obviously a lot of graduates are associates and they're in a practice that might only have one or at most two maybe types of implants. And so um, for them, they're kind of at this, um, this edge where it's like, do I go and learn a structured course that might be teaching me a different type of system that I might not have at the practice and how do I of course it doesn't matter or, but yeah. a course that teaches you a, a system isn't a good course step away run the other way um, it's like uh, when you go again I, I will use an orthodontic analogy if there's a course that's that's teaching you a particular bracket that's not a good course uh, same with implantology. Um, they may have an implant that they rely upon when they do their practical skills stuff, but that doesn't mean that they're teaching that system because learning an implant system is just learning about the screws and uh, and bolts and um, and drill sequence. Uh, there's there's no theory behind it. Um, so a course has to teach you basics. So. Uh, you can distinguish um, a premium implant from a cheaper implant mm -hmm. and why that is so. Um, it's not this is American and this is Korean. No, that's not one of the criteria. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you should be able to look at the implant and say what's what I like about it and what I don't like about it. Mm, yeah. I mean, so let's. So you're you're at this pros. Um, you're with this um, specialist, uh, the prosthodontic uh, specialist. You're learning mm -hmm. about implants early on, just seeing from the specialist what they're doing, and so you're kind of getting some information. And then you're going to attend weekend courses at this time. Is that right? And then as yep. your your career is progressing, you're transitioning out of the specialist practice, and you're going into uh, orthodontics endo. But at the same time, you're still kind of doing a little bit more these weekend courses along the way do you of not course. really doing um are you doing hands-on at this point or are you kind of yeah just, yeah. yeah whenever i can um especially when it comes to endo 
like I said, there's not much theory to learn in endo. You just have to um, try and do as much practical stuff as you can. And don't forget that um, what you do in your practice is the most invaluable learning experience that you will ever have. Um, I always say to people that, um, my opinion, that people graduate from a university and they think that they now have a profession. Well, that's actually not true. University is there not to teach you a profession. University is there to give you a license to start practicing on people. And that's when the learning starts. And that's what I strongly believe. So people that have not done tons and tons of education post-university, they're not right. Yeah, yeah. That's no. that's a, that's not a good attitude. Yeah. Um. I, the first time I heard that too, I totally agree with what you're saying. Um. I heard it from Prof. Um, Miller when I was starting the Kings um program. So what I was trying to get at was your implant. You know, when you're doing this, you were doing these implants um along the way. Um. <laughs> and then you start. At what point were you incorporating this um, the Brenner Institute or um, program into it? What, yeah, right in the middle of it. Right, right in the middle of it. When I when I realized that my surgical skills were not up to scratch, mm. I need to learn more. Then I went through the Brenner program. Um, I became one of the instructors for the Brenner program. So I've uh, instructed a few. Um, I'm not going to say younger. Um, but younger as in surgical sense. Um, less ex- like less experienced. Yeah. Less experienced, yes. Yeah. Um, and then um, I realized at that point that Brenner it was mostly about bone. There was not a lot of soft tissue. And at that point I realized, oh, wow, there's this whole other area that I need to, you know, Explore. get better. Yes, and, and I need to gain more experience and I need to know more about it. And that's when my soft tissue journey started. Um, And I'm kind of now um, within that soft tissue um, environment still um, now almost eight years later. Mm. And so this is when you're seeing the international um, setting now. Now you're seeing all the Polish ones. You're seeing all these overseas ones. Yeah. Right. Um, And then along the way, so you're doing all this. And then you've decided you want to start a practice. Yeah. So how does that kind of come about? <laughs> uh, again, that's also very individual. I'm glad I didn't start my practice very early. Mm-hmm. Um, how far that's are you not something at this point? I'm into my profession 14, yeah. 14 years. 14 years, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would probably... If I had to go back, I would probably start earlier than this. But um, kids came into it as well. Mm-hmm. So I had I had kids fairly late. And when I had two small children, a new practice wasn't something that I wanted. I just yeah. needed a steady job and a good income and take my gloves off at the end of the day and not think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I dragged it on for as long as I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's why it happened so fairly late. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, in our profession now, it's very female dominant, you know? 
So a lot of them are probably at that point, like yourself, you're saying, you know, considering that point where they either choose to specialize, they choose to start a life or a family life, or they start to uh, practice ownership. You know, these are very um, common questions that they come across maybe, you know, four or five years mm. out. And so mm. what you're saying is, um, you know, you just kind of pick with what, uh, it's personal preference, um, obviously, mm. but at if you could have started the practice, you would have wanted to start that before the family things were starting to come about. Is that what you're saying? In my particular case, in yeah. my particular case, I, and I'm not going to say regret because regret is a waste of time, but yeah. uh, it was just before the kids came, everybody kept telling me, Maria, what are you doing? And it was just procrastination. Yeah. But I guess you could look at it, uh, in another way, you you do things whenever you are ready. So saying now from the position of what I know now, it's like investing. If I bought 10 Bitcoins uh, 15 <laughs> years, you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> There's no point talking Video about it. Exactly. Um, hindsight is, is very useful, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> not. So I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't um, make any recommendations in that department. Um, and as much as I was financially stable, I could go into my own practice. I was fairly developed as a professional. I could go into my own practice. And everybody kept pushing me to go into I even had offers to buy in, but I wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. I was scared. I, I don't know. I don't know what I was scared of. Um, it, it has a lot to do with personality as well. Yeah. So like risks and all that, obviously, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I'm I'm very risk averse. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got to think about your partner as well, right? I mean, you guys have to be on the same page that you're going to go into something mm. like that's going to be a big um, component of your lives together, right? Mm. So it is definitely yeah. something that, as a sole individual, is not as easy when you're in a partnership per se. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, you can't really give advice on that. Yeah. It's, it's everybody decides for themselves. Mm. So, I mean, you've in fact, you know, started not too far from where you left. Is that right? How, how yeah. did you manage that? I don't know. I just, I squatted. I didn't buy an existing practice. So um, <clears throat> the the practice where I worked at, they didn't really have any objections to that or anything like that. Um, we don't see each other as we have very different styles of practice. We don't see each other as competitors in any way. Um, in fact, they refer patients to me. Um, so, yeah, and I, I needed to be in Bondi Junction because that's where I live. Um, that's, that's where we came when we immigrated. Like my life in Australia over 30 years we've lived here and also Russian community, which um, I service and have serviced all, all these years. They're all concentrated around here. Yeah. So, well, where I was kind of going with that was obviously you probably see, you know, a lot of graduates have this restraint and then, you know, that's why I brought up that question because it's a very unusual kind of situation maybe in nowadays for a lot of graduates who are probably mm -hmm. listening to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that would be very unusual. Yes, I agree. Um, although everybody's saying that 
this rule is not necessarily enforceable, but ethically, um, yeah, it's not, it's probably not a good thing if an associate sets up a practice. Some, well, because people assume that you're taking patients with you. Mm. Uh, that's not how it was with me. Um, yeah. They had their own, that was the practice where I did endodontics. I didn't have any of my own patients there. Do you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> I was just doing work that they asked me to do and returned the patient back to them. It was always their patients. So I guess maybe that's why they they didn't have a problem with it. And yeah, I didn't I didn't have any patients to take. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I would have just posed a question. Um, so yeah. you I mean, you it sounds like you love practice ownership nowadays. You've talked about how yeah, you, know, you feel that. You know, you, from that aspect of dentistry, it's grown year on year. Tell us a little mm. bit about that learning journey. Uh, my practice, and this is something that I have to specify, I'm not a business person. My practice is very small. Um, it's just me and three staff, and I'm sharing a floor with another very experienced, um, a much older dentist. Um, and he's got his own staff, also a very small practice. Um, so it's not a business in the sense that I don't have a, I do have a hygienist, but I don't have associate dentists. I'm not running this, you know, um, enterprise. Uh, it's just now I'm my own boss. That's the only difference. Yeah. Um, and the reason I'm loving it is because now I'm not restricted in what equipment I want to buy. Um, what kind of treatments I want to do, what kind of marketing I want to do or I don't want to do. Uh, I felt that I was forced into things that I didn't necessarily agree with when I was working for other people. So now I'm, when I'm my own boss, I choose what I want to do and that's great. But it's not really... A business. One one of the questions that you suggested when we spoke earlier was, uh, were there any CPD courses that you found not so useful? Mm -hmm. And I had to think about that. And for me personally, and again, that's not a, a, an advice of any description, but I have to say that uh, I've done also a ton of business courses and marketing courses, um, and I found them completely useless for me. Um, because that side of profession I've never developed. I find it so not interesting, and I'm the kind of person that you can't make me do what I don't want to do. <laughs> so business side of things is still um, in the dark. Marketing, I'm completely in the dark. I'm a dinosaur, um, and I'm not doing any of it, and any courses that I'd done before, I forgot all about it, and I don't want to do them again. Um, the only one that's to do with practice running that I found very, very valuable was uh, patient management by Mark Hassett. Okay, yeah. Talking to patients, treatment planning, I found that really, really useful. But other than that, practice management, hmm. That's, I mean, that's an interesting take on it for, you know, a lot of graduates, they're probably thinking, oh, do I need to get into it? Like, I don't know enough about it, just like you said in your end. And that's um, how I felt. That's yeah. why I did those courses, because I was thinking, oh, my God, now I'm a business owner. 
but it's not really a business owner. I just bought a job for myself. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not a business in a sense because business is something that makes money for you when you're not there. Yeah. It's not a business. I, I think it's interesting now um, in your situation where you kind of share a space with another clinician. So mm-hmm. um, that, that's an interesting point because obviously I can see how a lot of graduates or a lot of senior um, dentists as well, you know, they cut back in terms of the day. So when you rent a space, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're there for pretty much seven days per se, but mm-hmm. to do it, you know, share it, that might be something. Um, do you think that might be a trend of the future? Uh, I don't know, but it worked beautifully for us. Um, I, When I started the practice, I didn't know where it was going. Um, and my space was big. I've got a, 140 square meters. And for one dentist, it's a big space. Yeah. No, um, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And, and rents are ridiculous in Bondi Junction. Um, so, uh, yeah, but I just really liked the suite and and. Anyway, I, I did this. And then literally a few months later, uh, because there was so much building happening in Bondi Junction, um, my partner's Noel's um, building was being demolished and he was being kicked out of his space. Right. Um, and he's 63 or 64 and he approached me and he said, listen, I don't want to build a new surgery at this point. Um, Noel is also a, a professional musician, so it happens. Uh, so he, dentistry is not the only thing that he's passionate about. Um, there are other things. So he said, well, why don't we share? And I said, wonderful. You know, it's, it's good for me because it's helping me financially enormously. Um, and it's excellent for him because all he had to do is just transport his chair from one spot to, and it's literally next door. Um, and the I, I, on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and it's working really well. The, the only thing that I would say we both got very, very lucky, um, we get along so well, and our staff get along amazingly well, which is, I think, a rare thing in the industry. I haven't seen a lot of partnerships. And although we're not in the same business, because he's got his own patients, I've got my own patients, but we're so close together and our staff are working same front desk, same steering, same kitchen. Um, And if we were not uh, getting along, I can see a lot of problems being created. Um, and also dentistry wise, it helps when you're on the same page with the person that's next door because dentistry in private practice can get lonely. It can get lonely because it's just you and your nurse, you know, and uh, bouncing ideas off each other. Um, he also does uh, quite a bit of implantology. Um, so it's, it's worked wonderfully for us. Wow. So you talked about presenting dental care as wanting to be friendly, transparent, affordable, cost-effective, pain-free, uncompromising quality and accessibility. It's interesting how you were so transparent about the level of detail and thoughts on your website, you know, including the cost, type of procedures, because a lot of times the website just has a blanket statement about things. Yeah, because all these uh, business and marketing courses will tell you to never disclose the price. Um, And I can see where they're coming from because they just want to 
drag the patient into your chair no matter what, um, even if they're price shoppers, let me work on you when you get into the chair. My approach is completely different. If you're a price shopper, um, but don't want you. <laughs> um, all my patients come referred from other patients. So usually people know exactly what they want when they come and see me. So not disclosing um, the price is just silly in my position. So I'm more than happy to tell you exactly how much things cost. I'm more than happy to tell you on the phone. Um, I, 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 I'm not interested in putting as many patients through my chair as possible and seeing what sticks. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's not just the cost. I mean, it's, it's even like you know, the level of detail you talk about steps-wise. You talk about, you know, what they can expect, um, your preferences, thoughts. I think that's it's very different to some of the things that we would be seeing or I would be seeing anyway. So, uh, because... The reason for that, that's interesting that you should mention that. The reason for that is I wanted my website to reflect who I am and what, what practice I have because that's the first introduction for some people. That's the first introduction to me. And I want people to come and see me and trust me. So that's how I would present to them when they walk into my practice. And that's what I reflected in the in the website. Mm, yeah. Because I wanted them to get to know me a little bit. That's that's very interesting. Um, I want to pivot a little bit. Have there been any struggles um, in your CP journey or dental journey so far that some of our viewers might not know about? Oh, it's it's a constant struggle. Uh, <laughs> uh it, it's a con it's it's a constant everyday struggle um the biggest struggle for me is dealing with failures um i'm still to this day i'm finding it very difficult although i'm getting much better at it much better but um the biggest struggle is dealing with your own emotions again for me um cpd i don't know about struggling with cpd uh actually now I'm thinking being able to afford CPD might be becoming a bit of an issue now because CPD is becoming very, very expensive. And if you are not offering high-end procedures in your practice, you may not be making a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So that's I can see how that may be becoming more difficult and I can see why full mouth rehabs and all on fours can be so attractive because in the short term they are extremely profitable but you just have to be careful there and yes that's advice um, a very strong advice to be careful because if you're not careful then they become very expensive mistakes mm -hmm. yeah. that's there's another flip side to it so i can see the difficulties that young people would be facing now with actually simply being able to afford CPD, like, wow, yeah. three grand a day. Any practical course will run at three grand a day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially when they're graduating, you know, with debt as well. Yeah. Yeah. As well, so. I had no debt when I graduated. It's it's so different. My God. Yes. Very different. Mm. I mean, I want to talk about that, what you're talking about, you know, facing um, challenges today and trying to get to terms, uh, being a little bit more, I wouldn't say comfortable, but, you know, come to, I, I don't know the word for it, but talking about how, like, you know, you develop this 
I'll, I'm just going to call it OCD. Maybe this kind of a mentality earlier on in your career because of how because of um, watching um, um, Dr. John uh, um, Jim um, Jim Max, yeah yeah from Jim early on, and then how that you kind of yeah, you know um, translated to how you would look at your own dentistry. Um, so talk to me about that. How have you um, come to terms with it? Uh, a lot of it is simply personality, because even I think even before I worked for Jim, when I was a dental student, I was known for being obsessive compulsive. You are absolutely correct. Don't apologize for using that term. Um, a lot of it is personality. Um, yeah. That's that. That's what I would say. Of course, Jim had a huge influence on me, but I think the fact that I ended up in Jim's practice wasn't an accident. Mm. And so, how 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 are you coming to terms with that now? Because you're just saying like you're trying to um, be a little bit more comfortable within your shell of it. Is that what you're saying? Like when you're facing it. So, what 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 are you kind of um, speaking to yourself um, in terms of uh, mentally or? Um, oh, okay, okay. Well, that's called old age. Um, okay, it's funny. I'm not. I'm not. I don't consider myself old, but with with age, there comes certain wisdom, um, just general life wisdom, and that uh, I, I often think that I don't want to be thirty again for that reason, because there was so much that I didn't understand, um, and life gets easier as you get older for that reason. You learn more about yourself. Um, so we talk about CPD, and that's wonderful. But as you progress as a professional, you not only learn your profession, you also learn yourself. And that is probably the most valuable knowledge that that you need to have. Um, and as young people, I mean, I've got two teenage boys now, and of course, they think they know everything. And I can see, and I was like that. But the most important thing that we don't know when we're young is we don't know ourselves. And that's where choices come from. You talk about CPD and how do you choose this and that. That's, that comes from knowing yourself and what you want um, and becoming sure of what it is that you want. Um, and then coming to terms with some of the shortfallings, which everybody has. And like I mentioned before, perfection is a wonderful quality, but it's a curse. And that's something that I had to learn as well because that will bring you down like nothing else. Fear of failure is one of my biggest uh, things that held me back throughout the whole career. Fear of failure, you've got to deal with it. Um, I think that if you start um, conquering your fears, that's, that's going to be the biggest step in your career, conquering your fears. So is it more like you're speaking to other colleagues um, to kind of um, push through it or is it more like you just have to find it within yourself, um, mm. maybe taking some time away? I mean, I don't know, different people have different coping kind of mechanisms. Was there a particular coping mechanism that you had? No, no particular coping mechanisms. It's, well, look, I'll have to be honest with you. I, I've been on antidepressants too for most of my life. So... Uh, when you ask about struggles, there are huge struggles. And, and I, I've been through divorce and remarrying and, and all that. So um, on the surface, it, it, 
as as you present yourself to people, it it looks really really solid, but um, none of us are that solid. Um, so struggles come and they're constant and they're never ending. But you learn to live with them. Uh, coping mechanisms. I don't really know. I don't have a specific coping mechanism. I'm not religious person. I don't meditate. Um, I don't have a sport that I love. I'm a fairly active person. We, we do lots of stuff with kids. My boys are very sporty. But I don't have anything specific like that. Mm. I just learned to live with it. Yeah. Thank, thank um, you for being so open about it. Uh, I didn't mean to sure. No, um, no, no, no. I think it's important because, um, and I, I think that people don't talk about it enough. Um mm. uh, and and a lot of people will be surprised to know that I'm actually a hopeless introvert, hopeless yeah. introvert. Like uh, friends that know me, they know that they have to work on me for weeks to drag me out. Um, and thankfully, they still want to be my friends. But um, yeah, how how you present yourself to the world is not necessarily what what it really is. And um, young people need to understand that because on social media, everything looks really beautiful. Yeah. And it's not. It's just not. And I think that's the cause of, of huge anxiety in people. Mm. Yeah. So. I mean, I'll, I'll, change the, I'll change it a little bit. Um, so who's been pivotal in your dental career path and why? Because I know you've talked about Jim um, Ironside talked about Derek Mahoney. Um, both of the both of them, yes. Uh, Dan Brenner, for yeah. sure. Um, then out of the later people, uh, Radoslav. I don't know if you've heard the name. That's the Polish star surgeon that um, I developed a, a relationship with a few um, years back, and I went to see him in his practice for a few weeks in Poland, and he came to us a few times, and we taught together a few times. So he had an enormous and still is having an enormous influence on me. Um, uh, Marius Steigmann um, is also a German surgeon. Um, he's actually a general practitioner. So in, in a sense he would be one of the biggest influencers because he's not actually a specialist, yet um, he is up there at, in terms of the level of um, what he produces yes. um, is, is very much at a specialist level. Um, yeah, so th these are just a few. And so I want to ask as well, to tie it all up, you know, is there any particular wisdom or words of wisdom that you'd share with the young graduate nowadays um, who might be graduating? Yeah. Uh, the most important thing is to try and learn as much as you possibly can. Don't ever skimp on education. The most important thing, because that's, that's the thing that will keep you earning well. That's the thing that will keep you alive and passionate. And that's the thing that will ensure that you don't burn out. Mm -hmm. Okay? So it, it will help you cope with whatever life throw, throws at you. The more highly educated you are, the more skilled you are, the better person you will become. And I don't just mean professionally. 
I think education is is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're talking about um, maybe like minimizing the amount of mistakes you might be doing, or you're talking about um, just because you have a better understanding, you have a bit more foresight um, as to um, what could go wrong and avoiding that. I mean, I'm just trying to gauge. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That for sure. I have a sixth sense for um, problem patients now. And I, I, I can smell them. Um, <laughs> when I was working for other people, I actually saw when my bosses and, and other dentists in the clinic, they'd be taking on a patient and I'm thinking to myself, shit, don't, don't. And I was right every single time. Yes, that's one, that's one of the things that you learn. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, Dr. Maria, this, thank you for your time today. Um, if you could let the people know how they can find you or what's kind of going on in your life. Oh, for Google. <laughs> Dr. Google knows everything. Just throw my name in there and I will come up. I'm the only Dr. Maria Avis in Bondi Junction, Sydney. <laughs> so it's very easy to find me. Both my um, uh, Facebook pages are public, uh, professional and personal, and Instagram, and it's the same name everywhere. So it's not hard these days, is it? <laughs> if you like this episode, drop a comment below on your favorite part or leave a review. Don't forget to share it with your friends and we'll see you in the next episode of CP Junkie Podcast.